Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Kicking the Karaoke with me, Sid. And me, Elena. Our voices might sound quite similar, but we promise you'll get used to it. Last episode was all about that monthly flow, periods. And you loved it. Thank you so much for getting in contact. And please keep sharing it and letting us know what you think. This month, we're focusing on structures. Academic structures, to be exact. Have you ever wondered why you're being taught what you're being taught? Why are we focusing on slavery and the Third World War? Why aren't we unpicking England's colonial past? Why is there a statue of Cecil Rhodes at both Boston University and Oxford University that still stands? When he said that English-speaking people were the best race in the world. Is it because a £100 million donation is more important than recognising or criticising our history? Now, we are two white women, and it's important to point that out, because whether we can always recognise it or not, we have benefited from these academic structures as it is. We have three wonderful guests who are going to break down the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign and why it's important. Whilst they may be talking about a university setting, their stories began long before that. So enough from us and to our guests. Hi, my name is Maria Hussain. I'm currently the Vice President of Education at King's College London Students' Union. I use the pronouns she and her. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast this month. Um, so yeah, we've got you on this episode for the Why Is My Curriculum White? Can you explain what a little bit about what that movement is? So Why Is My Curriculum White was born out of the white curriculum that is that is embedded across all segments of education in this country, but particularly at university level. Um, so students got sick and tired of seeing straight white men and a Eurocentric perspective and the erasure of everything that isn't white, basically. It's an attempt to kind of decolonise what we're taught, how we're taught and why we're taught it. So when I was growing up and studying and even at university, I don't know if I would have realised that what I was learning was, as you've described it, Eurocentric and colonised. Could you explain a little bit more about what a decolonized and non-Eurocentric curriculum might look like? I can agree with your experience of not understanding that what you're being taught um, growing up is kind of white and is Eurocentric and is colonized. You never taught about the colonization that happened. You never taught about black history. And a decolonized and liberated curriculum and liberated education is one that dismantles the structures of whiteness in education and it all sounds very up in the air at the minute but when you start learning about kind of the structures of racism particularly and how it's very institutionalized and 
how that impacts educational educational establishments, you start to realise that what we're taught isn't actually the truth. And so a decolonised education is the stripping away of all the structures that have upheld this mistruth. Could you give an example of, of a mistruth? Oh, well, so for example, in my own education at university, for example, I took a module, I studied English literature, and I took a module called American Poetry 1950s to Present Day, thinking that it was going to be really exciting. There's so much history in America from like the civil rights movement particularly I was interested in. And when I got the reading list, all bar one of the writers was white. And it wasn't questioned. And so a student studying that module, even though they may know that that period of history is full of the civil rights movement, for example, is full of amazing black Americans making history and challenging the norms of their society, even though they know that that is there. It's kind of whitewashed ultimately that that period of history. And it's a mistruth. When you talk about American poetry from 1950s to present day, it isn't the beat poets and Amiri Baraka as the only black man who was a poet at that time. It was the black arts movement. It was so much history, so much political poetry that was just completely lost in a university situation as well. And that's like supposed to be the height of academia. When you go to secondary school, you're never taught about the repercussions of empire. You're never taught about the Bengal famine. You're never taught about the things that Winston Churchill said that promoted genocide. And you're taught to kind of just love your nation ultimately and I'm thinking particularly about history classes but also when you go to um, the way you're taught mathematics and sciences even it's all from a very western perspective and you don't question it because it's the only thing you've ever been taught and it's only when you come and so for me it was only when I came to university that I was actually able to talk to other people who had done a bit more reading than me and to kind of just grow as a person it was only until I came to university that I actually challenged what I had been taught and understood why I was being taught what I had been taught well first of all I've just learned so much from you quite literally about a large periods of history in the last like 30 seconds that you've just been talking (laughs) when I didn't years of education so that I guess shows how easy it is to impart knowledge like this but why is a movement like this important why is it necessary that we learn about other cultures and histories and also the the truth of it because to be fair as you've just said a lot of it is totally whitewashed the white man is the savior of things and that's not the case so why is it important I mean ultimately I think it's important because as I said before if we continue to be taught what we're being taught, it's untruthful. And secondly, if we continue to be taught what we're being taught and in the way we're being taught, it's also unfair to a lot of students. We hear about the BME attainment gap and that's a very real thing that impacts so many students. And that one of the causes of that is the white curricula. Ultimately, it's so important, first of all, because we must be taught the truth And secondly, to not do so disadvantages so many students and basically reinforces the racist structures that have created it in the first place. Could you tell us some more about the BME attainment gap? Because I'm sure for many of the listeners, this will be the first time they've heard of it. So the black minority ethnic attainment gap is basically, it varies at every institution, but it is fewer black and minority ethnic students achieve two ones or first than their white counterparts. And it's particularly a lot more... um, prevalent for black students and this is for the people who get to university Mm. so we could assume that this is probably even happening in primary school secondary school college which is even filtering I guess the people who even get to go to university 
Absolutely. It's something that white curricula and whiteness in education and racism in our society infiltrates every part of our society. And when you talk about children who are going to primary schools, for example, black and minority ethnic students will be less likely to achieve and go to university um, than their white counterparts. And that isn't just because they're black and minority ethnic. That's because there's institutional racism in every sector. So more BME students are likely to be working class which puts a barrier to their education. They're likely to be less financially stable, which puts a barrier to their education. So there are so many different issues that go into this, which is why whenever I talk about white curricula and BME attainment and kind of solving this issue, I also talk about the environment that we're in as well, because you can change the curricula, but if the white teachers are still teaching it, they're not really going to be making a difference. I think it's um, interesting that you brought up class essentially there because one thing that I'm quite aware of is for example the phrase intersectional feminism and I'm I'm quite conscious of the fact that it can be seen as quite an elitist thing because for example I only learned about intersectional feminism when I got to university and not everybody gets to go to university so could this issue almost potentially be seen as quite like a classist or an elitist issue because you have to be at university in the first place to even notice that your curriculum is white It is definitely in universities that the discussions are happening. And even with my own experience, it was at university that I actually, a light bulb went off and I saw the truth of the situation. So in a sense, it is somewhat confined to those who are at university, this kind of discussion. And I'm aware of that. And we have to always ensure that we are actually reaching to the grassroots and reaching to the people who are actually being affected. We at university are in a very privileged position in in the way in which we actually get to get to discuss these things. So it is definitely something that at the minute is very concentrated to higher education. However, it's something that it impacts every level of education and people in every walks of life. I don't know if it's one of those situations where it's kind of getting the turkeys to vote for Christmas sort of thing. I don't know if that's the right phrase to use. But um, one of the things when I've been reading up on this issue is that a lot of people have been like, oh, well, you know, we're in England and you're studying university in England. Therefore, it's no surprise that you're learning about like English history or things like that from an English slash Eurocentric perspective. What do you say to people who like who come back at you with something like that? Well, I would say that I'm... English and does that mean that my history is not to be learnt about there were black people in this country for centuries there were there were Asian people there were there were so many different kinds of people in this country and the reason why you think that this is what English history is is because even you have been affected by the white curricula you haven't been told the truth about your country so when you say of course you're in England, you're in a British university, you're at a British school, you're going to be learning about Chaucer, I would say, but there were so many other writers and people existed at the time of Chaucer writes about these people. To think that English history is white is a mistruth in, in and of itself as well. Do you think that educational institutions are doing this on purpose or is that they're not aware of it or that they're not willing to change? Ultimately, I think it's a lack of understanding about how, how institutional racism works. I always say, for example, at universities that I'm guessing the vast majority of institutions and particularly the kinds of institutions that I come from, which is a very old Russell Group university, those kinds of institutions weren't built for people like me. They weren't built for the students that are going to those universities now. They weren't built for women. They weren't built for black and minority ethnic students. They weren't built for LGBT plus students. They weren't built for disabled students. They were built for rich white men. So what you have to say is, do you want to continue in that vein? 
or do you want to actually move forward? And when you say that to people, they finally understand that they don't want to be a part of that same history and that in order to kind of move forward, you actually have to deconstruct what the university was about. The university wasn't all intersectional and loving diversity. It was for a specific group of people. And until you address that and address the foundations of it, you can't change it. That was so well said. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting that you mentioned that as well, because that was kind of where the whole roads must fall hashtag was that came from, that how there's a statue of roads at Oxford University. And um, I read this article where it was like, the reason that there's a statue of him is because he left money to the university, but in his will, it's like, this money is there to like carry on the empire and carry on this and carry on that. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this university is funded by people like that. And I think you said it, brilliantly just then that these universities were for like rich white men unfortunately but not anymore hopefully (laughs) what are the foundations of a racist institution or institutional racism what does that look like i've heard of it as things like lecturers are not able to speak your name or pronounce your name so they don't ask you questions in class could you give a couple more examples because people have such faith in the institutions that they might be really blind to the idea that they would be racist do you have any more examples? Actually, at King's, if we start from last year, the what was then the King's Ethnic Minority Association, but it's now the King's People of Colour Association, actually undertook some protest. We actually had a wall celebrating female professors. But surprise, surprise, I think like 99% of those female professors were white. And so it became known as the White Wall. So from there, there were some protests held by um, the People of Colour Association. And from those protests, it was amazing. They got two open meetings with all the heads of the universities and both of these opening meetings were packed. I've never seen anything like it before and it was a highly emotionally charged meeting because it was the first time so many students of colour had come together and were hearing that other people were experiencing racism in their university as well. So there were stories of one, one woman who wears a headscarf. Her lecturer came to her and actually grabbed hold of her headscarf and said something along the lines of, you don't need to wear this. And it's also the unseen things. So, for example, students just feeling uncomfortable to to talk when they're in a classroom full of white students, and that's particularly prevalent in a lot of art subjects. And students just not feeling comfortable to go and chat to their lecturer in the same way white students might feel if their lecturer is white, to go and talk to that person and therefore not get like kind of the best feedback and support on their work, and that all feeds entertainment gaps. But... There have been so many examples of racism, microaggressions, both subversive and blatant, at university, even just at my own university. And it was only in those open meetings that we finally kind of understood how much it impacted students. We'd speak about it in our groups of five, six, seven, eight. But then when you get a room packed of hundreds of students, and it was so emotionally charged, talking about the way in which like, even government legislation like prevent impacts their education as well because universities aren't standing up to it. It was really mind-opening. But unfortunately, I think because there hadn't been a conversation with a lot of the senior staff and academics about the fact that, as I said before, this university wasn't built for these students. And so it's because of this, these structures that haven't been challenged yet, that this keeps happening. It was blocked and they accepted it as, a oh, this is really terrible, but there was a kind of an attempt to somehow explain it away. I think it's really interesting that if the students aren't feeling welcome in academia, then they won't become the lecturers. 
so they won't be the ones leading the sessions and bringing up new theories and new thoughts or even bringing up the ones that already exist but had been spotlighted before. And I, I also remember hearing about a psychological thing where you like people who are like you. But then you also touched on some other really interesting things. Could, could you explain quickly what PREVENT is? Yeah, so PREVENT is the government's counter-terror legislation and it's been branded as toxic and not workable, basically because it basically turns lecturers, doctors, teachers into spies. And it states that some of the markers of potential radicalization are things like being at a transitional period of life, mistrusting Western media, a desire for political or moral change. And so it's a very racialized agenda, ultimately, because it definitely does place a chill factor on Muslim students, particularly. They're more afraid to speak in seminars about certain topics because... Somebody could pick up on that and uh, potentially refer them to prevent. So it's when I say it's institutional and our universities are so influenced by the context that they're in. I mean, they were built in a context and that context still survives. Um, so all these things do influence the way we're taught and how we feel about that. So do you think things like this, so the lack of education about other cultures and other areas of history, contributes to things like Islamophobia, where people just aren't, they're just not aware of it, they're not talk, it's not talked about? Yeah, I mean, of course, Islamophobia, it manifests itself because of the ignorance of a lot of people, and that ignorance can be exploited by politicians, by media, by whoever. I mean, when it comes to Islamophobia, this is what I mean about people thinking white English history is white, but there were Muslims in England and in Britain for many, many years before my grandparents might have migrated here. And not being taught about different cultures and different lives and different people from those people particularly encourages Islamophobia, encourages racism. Because when you have a white professor as as has happened to me when you have a white professor talking about Britain post 9-11 and you're the only Muslim woman in the in the seminar room and they turn to you and say oh so what does the community think about this that that must make you feel like really token absolutely and this is another thing actually the tokenism that is there you are you are if you're the only brown the only brown person in the seminar room you are always looked at and everyone talks about it and you might laugh it off but when you actually think about it, it's it's so incredibly uncomfortable and racist and you're, me- you're made to feel as though you're a guest in this place. And you feel like anything you say about this topic will be hindered by other people's perceptions and stereotypes about who you might be and what you might say and what you might be thinking. Does this topic at all intersect with your identity as a Muslim woman? I'm conscious of the fact that I might be might be making you feel token now. But um, is it a part of your identity that interacts with this? Definitely when I see the way in which I think the only thing I read about Muslims in my entire time at university was Chaucer, which was incredibly racist. And then there were some other things about post 9-11 and terrorism and things like that. And the only time my faith was ever brought up was in those contexts. Right. And it was that was the only time I was ever looked at as well. And it's a negative context. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And on top of that, I'm also Asian. I'm also Pakistani. And so there's so much history in that in this country as well. And when I think that my family has been in this country for 70 years, almost 100 years, and still my generation of this family still feels 
as though we don't fit and we're not welcome and we still feel threatened about our kind of lives and our existence in this country it shows that there's just something incredibly wrong within the fabric of this society and i truly believe that education really solves a lot of mistruths but yeah being south asian i've heard like blatant lies about pakistan being spoken about by people who would think were would do their research and be educated but i was in a seminar one time and um Somebody had to do a presentation on a text and it mentioned Pakistan and they started saying, oh yeah, in Pakistan they don't speak English, female genital mutation isn't in the law. And I had to pipe up and say, as probably the only Pakistani in that room, that English was the national language before even Urdu was and children are taught English because of colonisation, of course, but children are taught English from when they're very young. And why is it also that they need to learn English in order, to, in order to be worth anything in the first place. Does this whole rhetoric kind of imply that English history is the only one that's important and therefore actually do, taking the time to do research about what the actual language is in Pakistan is not as important? I'm using inverted commas. Absolutely. I mean, everything to do with our education places white culture, literature, history at the top. And even when a black writer, for example, is spoken about, they're always spoken about compared to the white person the black person or the brown person whoever isn't capable of having their own thoughts their own ideas they're always copied off someone when in actuality a lot of the times those ideas that the white person writes about are actually copied off of the black or brown writer but of course the way in which our systems work whiteness is what is prized and historically black and brown thought has been deemed lesser yeah so when I've been like talking to people we're doing an episode on why is my curriculum white and explaining it to people a lot of the the backlash that I have gotten so far is oh but there there weren't any other people writing about this or talking about this it was just like especially if you look at philosophy it was just all old white men or if you if you were to ignore schools of thought by old white guys that you would be somehow compromising people's education and I was just kind of baffled a little bit because I was like, wow, okay, you seem quite ignorant. But then at the same time, I was like, do you know what? Off the top of my head, I can't refute that because I can't think of any other academics in these fields. Can you point blank conclusively say, no, there are other academics in these mm. fields. They're just being written out of history. There will absolutely be other academics who aren't largely white men in, the, in these fields. I think the fact that even you even I in some cases won't be able to think off the top of my head about a black writer or a woman writer or an Asian writer who has done work in certain fields is testimony to how deep this infiltration or this whiteness goes into our education. And I wonder, do you have to be an academic to do anything interesting or challenging or worthwhile? Because if you think about who becomes academics and, you know, I bet there are thousands of people who've written really interesting pieces perhaps just on the back of a scrap piece of paper and it's never gone anywhere or maybe it has gone somewhere or it's just not been documented yes i've noticed that a lot of white people benefit from documentation (laughs) absolutely absolutely i mean it's even in we have to remember that it's so difficult to even know your own history and you educate yourself about your own history particularly when you're black or brown i was trying to find out where my family originated from like past my great-grandparents I went on to like probably not the best source but I tried that whole ancestry.com thing um but all the as seems obvious now but all the um, records were of the white colonizers families who were living in India at that time unless you were a soldier there was no record of you and that entire history is just gone from you and I think back to people whose ancestors were slaves 
I think there was a friend of mine who was talking about how they have a white name now and they're black, but their entire history, their familial history has been stripped from them and ultimately they could be wearing the name of somebody who enslaved their ancestors. And I think we have to remember that that erasure of history goes so deep that it's really personal as well. That was going to be my next question. Do you think it's affected you personally not being taught? It has, not only in the way that I mentioned just before. Basically, I was taught that whiteness was the best. And so you end up kind of hating your own culture. And I can admit that that was what I was like when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, when I'm only taught about white history or when I'm taught about these white writers who are at the pinnacle of culture and when I'm taught about white music and couple on top of that the racism that just keeps being thrown at you the stuff that I hear my dad say my dad works at um he's a, like a manual factory worker as my granddad was before him and he I remember him coming to me and just kind of being really down and I asked my mum what was what was up and he, my mum was just like just people just keep saying crap to him and he can't run away from that because he has to work. Mm. He, he feels he has to work in his environments. So the lack of education impacts me on so many levels that it impacts my family, it impacts my parents, it impacts the way I feel about myself, it impacts what I know about myself and my own history and other people's history as well, what I know about the truth. What would you say to someone, maybe listening to the podcast right now, and someone who's a person of colour perhaps and is just coming to terms with this right now, has never thought about it this way before? Because I can imagine it's pretty overwhelming when you first get the light bulb that you mentioned earlier. I would say, I think for me it was the realisation that it hits you at every point in your life is something difficult to kind of comprehend. So for example, with me, and I, I can talk about this in terms of education because it's the Islamophobia, for example, that I'm about to talk about is comes out of an ignorance and a lack of education and, and allowing institutional racism to go unchallenged. But every day when I walk out of my house with a headscarf on, there is not one day that goes by that I don't consider if I am safe, if somebody is thinking something terrible that they're going to do to me or something like that. And that has a massive toll on your psychology I would say to somebody that find friends who understand that because you you're not on your own in feeling this and you're not on your own in understanding that and don't be embarrassed as well if you don't know that much I still don't know as much as other people that I know I I probably never will know as much as I should but just be proud of who you are it's all very cheesy now but (laughs) but just be proud of who you are and just learn as much as you can yourself and never be afraid to challenge any wrongs or any untruths that you see in front of you. You should always challenge, and if there are no black writers on your reading list, challenge that, because that should not be the case. But also challenge tokenism, because this is what tends to happen. So going back to my module on American literature, Amiri Baraka was thrown on there towards the end of, of the module. So we had like nine weeks of white people. That's tokenism. So don't be just that one brown voice in the room. Don't ensure that people are actually engaging with what is truthful and what is real. You've just said avoid tokenism. So it's not the responsibility of the person of colour in the room to highlight it every time. So what can white Eurocentric students do? Also challenge it. A lot of the time, white students will have more access to their lecturers and other university people who can influence. But if you can support the voices of POC who are saying that this isn't right and not overpower that, that's what you should be doing. POC means people of colour. Yes, people of colour, sorry. No worries. Okay, so lastly, 
is there anything that you're working on or anything that we can help you with or anything that you want to plug? I'm looking to start a new blog called A 20-something Muslim Girl. But also, generally, with the White Creek Lemon Beamy attainment gap work, I would say that it's also important to kind of, wherever you see work going on around that, and I can talk very generally because there is stuff happening across institutions at the minute. So if you are at a university who is doing something or if you're just in a town that is doing something, I would say get involved with them and see what they need locally. Thank you so much for coming on. You've been really kick-ass and I I definitely echo Elena in that I've learned more from you in the past 30 minutes than I have from any lecturer. That was Maria, the current sabbatical officer at King's College London. I really liked how she talked about how universities weren't made for people of colour and how she encourages us all to question what we're taught. And up next is Savannah. Let's hear her take on things. I'm Savannah. I currently work as the undergraduate education officer at Sussex Uni. My pronouns are she, her. And just to tell you a bit about my background, so I was born in London in Brixton, but I wouldn't say that I'm from London as such because I didn't grow up there. So my dad is from Zimbabwe and my mum was born in Uganda, but she's mixed British heritage. And so I've grown up, spent most of my life in Bristol from when I was like 10 to 17. That's the longest time I've been there. But I've also lived in Cornwall. I've lived in Zimbabwe. I've lived in Surrey for a bit. And yeah, now I'm in, living in Brighton currently. Why do you think a movement like this is needed? It's needed for everyone, really. A lot of the arguments come from the fact that racism obviously still exists and affects a lot of people and people of colour and university students when they go into these institutions. So you go to an institution, if you're from a black minority background, you arrive as part of this white, it's a white-based institution, it's a white-dominated institution, so you already feel kind of isolated and you feel like you're not the norm, basically, of what this institution is. And definitely I wasn't aware, you know, I didn't think about a lot of these issues before I went to university. I felt like I hadn't really been affected by racism because I think that I didn't know, I didn't have the like resources and knowledge to really understand. I didn't really have the framework to say, like, why this is, and identifying that as racism or identifying that as how colonization has affected the society today so I think it's needed because it needs it's not justice basically to have a whole group of people be completely like excluded from education in the sense of like not being represented but it's also for everybody really I think it's what the purpose obviously universities and education is is to have the most truthful most accurate understanding of things as we can as human beings and it's, I don't think that having perspectives that are politically shaped by a particular group of people who are dominating other groups is really truthful. So in any subjects in science, I did philosophy, you're trying to understand the underlying answers to fundamental questions. And that shouldn't be shaped by your like political social biases, it should be shaped by a genuine understanding that has. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Being informed by different perspectives and different viewpoints. So is it a bit like Black History Month or LGBT History Month or Women's History Month, but an extension of it? So it's not, let's have more than a month, let's have an entire curriculum. It depends how you like frame Black History Month or what that really means. I find it a bit weird because I feel like, why do I get like one month <laughs> of my history and everybody else gets like the rest of the time? Like, I find that kind of funny. But I suppose, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying in the sense it's like in a world where or in a society where the curriculum was like decolonized, you wouldn't need things like Black History Month or LGBTQ History Month because those histories would be a core part of all of our histories really which they are I do think we need those months at the moment because I think that people aren't aware of thinkers and key figures in black history that they should be aware of because the education system isn't um, inclusive enough of them. Why is this a movement that you in particular are so passionate about? So I got involved in it at Sussex through being part of a student society called I2 Am Sussex. It's a social justice anti-racist society that was started in response really to experiences of racism at Sussex and it's, it's basically it's an intersectional society tackling racism and challenging it in a way that is inclusive of gender politics in a way that is decolonial I guess in its approach to trying to undermine racism but not just in a single as a single issue but in a way that really reflects our experiences and it was actually started in Harvard this movement of societies like this and the title is from a poem by Langston Hughes, who's a Harlem Renaissance African-American poet. And the poem's called I Too Am America. It's about recognising like, his experience, I guess, as an, as an African-American in America. There's a white paradigm of Americans. And then African-American culture is like a different and separate culture that isn't yet included, I guess, in the like, paradigm American. So he's challenging that by saying, I, I'm here as well. Like, you know, I have a different experience and I'm also here. And it captures what we want to do with the society because it's like the university has a certain idea of what a typical university student is like and we're challenging that by saying no actually there's lots of different groups. So this sounds like a movement that's been building up for a while starting off with the I2M Harvard and then I think I saw something like I2M Cambridge so equivalents here yeah yeah and then building at UCL into why is my curriculum white and then being taken over by the National Union of Students to make it something more national so yeah it sounds like it's gathering momentum where next? I think what needs to happen next or now really is Everybody, students and staff and academics and sort of everyone in society needs to be thinking about their individual position in this movement and thinking of it as something relevant to them. And I feel, feel like that's something that I'm really trying to work on this year at Sussex is capturing people's minds and ideas so that they can really think that actually, like, you know, it affects everyone and it isn't like, oh, this is an issue for people of colour, this is an issue for black people, this is an issue for LGBTQ people because it affects you. 
we can't have that as being the status quo. We need it to be that everyone realises their responsibility to change the, the assumptions and colonisation basically of their own mind. So I think it's a real practice of thought and conversation it needs to happen, a lot of education, a lot of conversation, a lot of the reading and learning and unlearning. So in practical terms, it means like spreading awareness of this movement from institution to institution, building as many of these kind of spaces where we can have these conversations as possible and also bringing in academics bring in people who are currently part of the system into it so that they can reflect on the inside on what they're doing needs and that's how they could change their practices or ideas to move towards something that isn't complicit in the oppression that goes on and also people like platforming their own voices not expecting that it's going to come from some authority because I think part of the movement is undermining like the hierarchical nature of education as something that's like given to us by some authority above and we just like fill ourselves up with this knowledge when actually we have as human beings to have experiential knowledge to bring and we should make like teaching and learning more of a practice of applying like theory to our lived experience and like living our learning and also loving it and like teaching out of a practice of love as opposed to teaching as a force of control. So you're a, a SAB officer at Sussex University. When I think of Brighton, I think of this, you know, really liberal, open-minded place. But what's your experience been like at Sussex University with this campaign? Have you had any backlash? Do you know how it compares to other universities? I think, yeah, Brighton is a pretty liberal, open-minded place, I guess, relative to a lot of places. Um, As a queer woman, I definitely appreciate, like, living in Brighton and somewhere I can express that side of my identity but obviously like there's no point in time when we're finished I don't think there's any point in time we're like finished with any kind of learning but I think what needs to like stop happening in places like Sussex or Brighton is thinking like oh I'm at Sussex like it's progressive that means we've somehow finished like the definition of progressive is like you're moving forward so we need to think that always constantly reflecting on like what is problematic about the ways that that our society is operating and like what we can do to improve it and change it so yeah like I've had a lot of positive reaction to this campaign in the sense that people want to participate people were encouraging me doing it like in terms of the student body and in terms of like the support and the different people that I work with on this campaign it's not like a single person struggle I guess it's never I never felt like, I've always felt like there's people supporting me but there obviously are individuals who don't like this this is like a challenge to their privilege it's a challenge to what's the norm of things at the moment and I've had comments like you want to ch- stop teaching the classes of English literature so that we can listen to the latest black woman and bitching about how some white guy bumped into her once what? and Whoa. things like that like, <laughs> like just kind of you know things like oh you just want the curriculum to be about like how bad Britain is or you just have a chip on your shoulder about this this and this um, but I find that, like, those people really don't have they any have a kind of impact. They definitely do, and they have their own self-hate, I guess, to kind of deal with. I think it's, it's worthwhile to just continue and to continue, like, trying to reach out to those people, even though it is labour and it is really annoying. What I'm finding more difficult as a sabbatical officer is engaging with the university bureaucracy and the, the sheer, like, slowness of the system that exists in place at the moment because everything you want to present to them, every new idea has to be kind of presented in their format because they don't understand your way of doing things. And you go through an agenda and everyone has like a short amount of time to speak about something and then you have to write up all the notes and then you have to do this in this very like formal way. I want teaching to get a a practice out of love and I don't think that there's no love in those spaces and no love in those rooms so it's kind of it's frustrating because it's like I'm trying to work in, in a system where there's quite a narrow room for manoeuvre and it's a system that's kind of against me as opposed to individuals 
So I guess, yeah, that's a challenge, but it's a challenge that we all face. Yeah, and it kind of, I feel like that echoes a lot of issues when it comes to, like, changing things. It's like, oh, you can change things, but if you do it our way, and it's like a lot of people Which takes years. Yeah, and it takes years. A lot of people don't have the resources or the ability to, like, maybe do things your way. And so then that just kind of, like, screams Yeah, the thing that you're trying to change is their way. So, like, (laughs) if you change your way in your way, like, it's not, that isn't going to work. Yeah. So I'm really interested to know, as a queer woman of colour, do you feel disadvantaged in any way because you haven't really like learnt about your like heritage or your identity? Yeah, I do feel that it's a it's a disadvantage not to know about your your history and your identity. I feel that I wouldn't describe myself as disadvantaged. I think that I've got a lot of privilege in a lot of ways. Being in this position, being able to make changes to things that I want to make changes to. I've got loads of privileges, but I feel that in that sense, I've had to find empowering knowledge outside of institutions and outside of school because it's not been there like as a part of the system. And also I have to always be the one sort of educating other people. Like I think that I experienced racism in terms of like microaggressions or, you know, heteronormativity as well. And I had a lot of internalized like homophobia and wasn't able to express my identity in that way for a long time so that has also been disadvantaged and you sort of you take for granted like how easy it is for people to who just assume their identity is part of the norm right so like the white male norm it's assumed they can speak they'll raise their voice and speak in seminar and like until I started critically reflecting it didn't realize how much my seminars and philosophy seminars were dominated by men and men spoke for like twice the amount of time that women would speak in seminars and I used to be quite like silent and quiet and you know, apologise as well a lot for what I was saying or did for my ideas. And that's definitely a disadvantage because you, then your voice is not heard as much. So obviously I'm try, trying to find things to empower myself now, but it's something that needs to be accessible to everybody because that's otherwise highly oppressive. And... Spot on. Thank you. <laughs> that was, Those are really good points. And I, I totally associated with so many of them. <laughs> I was wondering, and I know you just talked about educating, so you absolutely can just bypass this question. But I was wondering if you had an example of maybe something in philosophy that you were taught and that it was white, they, they missed out other points of view that they definitely could have drawn on. Yeah, well, definitely like, in philosophy, it's, it's a white male-dominated discipline in terms of how it's taught, at least at Sussex. So I did an existentialism module. The module focused on things like the Heidegger, Ipgard, all white male thinkers, essentially, but with also Simone de Beauvoir, who was introduced in the course as Sartre's lover, which I felt undermined the independence of her ideas. So one of the criticisms of this movement that we've come across is oh, well, we're in England, so of course you're going to be learning about a Eurocentric British perspective of things. And I appreciate that you you might not know this and feel free to not answer it if you don't. But do you know how it maybe compares in other countries? So if we're talking about maybe a country in Africa or elsewhere in the world, do you know how the education fares there? Is it the same where it's got like a white perspective on things? If they're learning about the British Empire, do they really learn about the British Empire or do they learn about the whitewashed version of the British Empire? Right, so a lot of African universities, their education systems are from a colonial standpoint, right? Because they were colonised countries. And so I, my family from Zimbabwe, which is highly colonial in terms of still, in terms of politics, in terms of education, in terms of schooling, is still hugely like still influenced by the legacy of colonialism. So just because it's in Zimbabwe doesn't mean they're only learning about Zimbabwean history. It's actually not the case. And a better example, well, 
just as good example really is in South Africa at the moment. Um, there's the, the Rhodes Muscle movement, which started there. The universities have been closed for three weeks. So a lot of the universities like um, UCT in Cape Town, which is where like this protest against the statue of Bethel Rhodes, he was basically the, the mastermind behind apartheid in South Africa. There's a statue of him at their university and that kind of is sort of symbolic of how like this white British colonial education system was still prevalent in those countries. So yeah, it's an African country, but yet the curriculum is completely distorted and here it reflects. So in terms of other parts of the world, that's the reality. This isn't just an issue in the UK. That was a really, really interesting insight there. Thank you so much for that. Excellent. Okay, we're pretty much done. I just have one final question. And so firstly, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. You've been an absolute kick-ass guest. And at the end, we always ask, what is it that you're working on? Is there anything that you'd like to plug? Anything you want to use the platform for? Oh, yeah. Well, I would love to plug the Decolonising Education campaign at Sussex University because... So the idea of it, we're trying to break down the barriers between the institution and the democracy of sharing knowledge, really. We want knowledge to be something that is accessible to everybody and something that isn't sort of held and owned by anybody or owned by the institution, which means that we want people like from all different backgrounds, people from outside the institution to come to Sussex and to come and come to our events, come to our conversations and to participate in this movement and feel like part of our community and the other thing I'd like to plug is with my friend Yusuf Bakalia run some alternative education sessions so it's basically about experimenting with colonial pedagogies and just trying to like use fine theory that empowers our lived experience and use that theory to learn so we talk about philosophy we talk about sociology but we like do it in a way that's based on our own experiences and sharing and like sharing perspectives between each other and with uh, Leila Bakali who's another friend of mine who's Yusuf, happens to be Yusuf's sister we run a women's group in Brixton so our next group is on the 29th of October and it's in a cafe near the station in Brixton which if you are interested you should email me ugeducation at com to get more information about how you might come to that and I have a blog called Fuck Politeness with my friend Nicole hey, um, awesome. <laughs> just me and Nicole at the moment but and a few of our other friends that were just right kind of about our experience of just trying to get rid of politeness as a kind of obstacle of doing what we saying what we believe and doing what we want to do and the idea is just writing like what's true to your experience writing any comments or thoughts that you have and poetry as well and like art so if anyone wants to contribute to that you should also email me at ugeducation.com well that sounds amazing savannah thank you so much for sharing that and we'll definitely share that as well That was Savannah chatting to us about the history of Cecil Rhodes, which I found really interesting, as well as how she's working with the community in order to decolonise the curriculum. That sounds great. Now let's listen to someone who started off the campaign, Leah. I'm Leah and I was one of the people in the, I guess, original Why Is My Curriculum White group from UCL, University College London. And I kind of got involved with that because I was a sabbatical officer at UCLU and because of some of my own experiences with the curriculum. Would you feel comfortable telling us about your personal experiences with the curriculum that you mentioned just there? Okay, so there were two kind of moments which stuck out with me and my curriculum at UCL. I studied psychology and I remember there was one point when I really, really wanted to be a clinical psychologist. It was my dream. It's what I wanted to do. It is what I want to do. But sometimes I kind of drift away from that dream and I'm not really sure why. And then I saw a black psychologist and it was kind of the eureka moment and I kind of realised that it was something to do with not seeing anyone that 
it looks like me that is a psychologist um, that was really a lecturer, never mind a clinical psychologist. Did you ever become aware of your curriculum and how, how white it was and its whiteness before university? I'm not sure. Because I was so surrounded by whiteness growing up that whiteness was completely the norm. So I couldn't really necessarily question the absence of something when it was the only thing that I was surrounded by and the only thing that I could see. Because whiteness was everywhere. I grew up in a really white town. Most of my friends were white. My mum was white. I'm mixed race. So whiteness was kind of the norm. And then I came to London and things were different and I sort of slowly got to grips with my blackness as well, I guess. So why do you think a movement like Why Is My Curriculum White, from your perspective, why is it needed? So there are some things that are just quite harmful about it. It's quite draining to study. For example, at uh, UCL, there was the Galton Lecture Theatre and one of their main buildings is the Pearson Building, both of whom are famous eugenicists. Galton founded the eugenics movement. Pearson was the first chair of the first eugenics department in the UK instantly at UCL. And so studying in rooms which are dedicated and glorify people that encouraged the genocide of your ancestors, I guess, and not just black people, but disabled people, LGBT people, anyone that didn't fit the, the normative standard of the white, cisgendered, heterosexual man. So studying in those places at Queen Mary as well, there is a plaque dedicated to Leopold, a man that is responsible for the murder of more people in the Congo than Hitler killed. Millions of people. And they have a plaque dedicated to the sky. And what makes things worse was that the students' union, not necessarily the sabbatical officers, but the council, they didn't support a motion submitted by the Pan-African Society to get rid of this plaque. So it's kind of is everywhere. It's even in your fellow students who don't quite understand the kind of psychological damage of being in spaces which quite literally glorify people that are completely anti-you, I guess. I hadn't heard of, of any of these names before which says a lot about what kinds of things we're not taught about, I guess. I mean, I never would have looked into the names of the rooms, but there's definitely something I should be doing. What does that feel like to be studying in those places? I don't know. I thought it was there was something a bit disturbing about the fact that the Pearson building... And Pearson is also a famous statistician. What is it? The normative... Yeah, it, when it's like within a normal distribution, isn't normal it? Normal distribution, that's what I was trying to remember. The origin of that term, normal distribution, something which we use every day if you're doing psychological research, that comes from eugenics. The normative value is a person who, like I said before, is cisgendered, straight, is white, who fits what Pearson and what Galton decided was normal. God, it literally just baffles me because I did psychology as well. And when you learn about these people, you know, they are just held up on pedestals, you know, these amazing researchers and statisticians, whatever they're called. And it's just, you were awful people. Mm. And you, you're just not taught about things like this at all. Which is, I bet, where someone would say, if someone is awful, but they did one good thing that contributes to research, should you dismiss all of them? Can you explain a little bit about um, eugenics? At UCL, the statistics department and the genetics department are kind of children of the eugenics department, of which Pearson was the head. And eugenics is the idea that there is a normal or 
perfect type of person that there's a pure race it was taken by hitler and it was taken by many in america where they forced black women to have abortions and it suggests that you can be of a pure and desirable race or you can be of an impure and undesirable race and there's positive and negative eugenics so there's the idea that you can create more people that are desirable and then there's the idea that you can eradicate people that are not desirable. What does that feel like as someone who's mixed race? A bit weird. (laughs) Also because a lot of the eugenicists were very anti-mixed race. I mean what was her name? The person that did the family planning woman. She's on a stamp. She was another famous eugenicist. I think it's Mary Stokes. Oh, Mary Stokes, Stokes. yeah. So Mary Stokes was really anti-mixed race. Actually, it was while I was doing some research on being mixed race for my dissertation that I came across her. And she believed that people shouldn't interbreed and that you shouldn't mix races and that it was never going to work out. The person would not really be a real person. Fun fact, she also disowned her son for marrying someone with an eye condition. (laughs) Oh, wow. And this is someone that we have on our stamps that we in England are pretty much championing. I mean, that's pretty much idealism, you know, putting someone on a stamp. You've got the Queen on a stamp and now you've got Mary Stopes on a stamp and you're saying that her her views and everything she stands for, everything she worked towards. Which, as we've just learned, isn't out of the ordinary. We've got rooms dedicated to people like this, statues, uh, institutions that are meant to be grounds for, you know... Provocative thinking. Exactly. And independent thinking. Yeah, and freedom of speech and all that good stuff. And we are uh, idolising some of the most awful people in history, but as you said, have arguably contributed. That's probably the argument that's used for it, but you know what really gets me? It's the fact that we don't even notice. The fact that I'm only thinking, why is my curriculum white a year after I graduate? And that's after I graduate university. Like, what about the, you know, not everyone wants to go to university, and that is totally fine. Not everyone's able to go to university, and that sucks if you're not actually able to because of costs or or anything else. Yeah, Do you, do you think this is potentially quite an elitist issue? in that not everyone does have the opportunity to go to university because, for example, I've only become aware of these issues because I was fortunate enough to go to university. So what about the people who aren't allowed or can't go? Well, we might have talked about why is my curriculum white, but we weren't the first people to criticise the white curriculum. Oh, yeah? There were people doing it far before we were. That's why there are things like black Saturday schools. That's why there's alternative education and community educators. These are the people that have been saying for a long, long time that the curriculum is ignoring part of our histories and it's not just us and we have to make sure that in the movement it doesn't become elitist and it doesn't become just the students that are in universities that are in this privileged place that are saying that their curriculum is white when it goes much further. It doesn't start at university. It it starts in primary school, it starts in secondary school. Why are we learning about the amount of wives that King Henry VIII had. And when we learn about black history, it's only in the context of slavery when history began a long time before slavery. And black people have a lot of other things that are part of our history. Has anyone ever been like, well, no, you're in England, so of course you're going to learn like an English Eurocentric version of events? I don't really follow the YouTube comments. To be honest, people do say that to me. They say, well, well, you're in England. But then you also, you've got a question, why am I in England? Where are my ancestors in England? Why are people that aren't of European origin in England? England and Europe's history 
is not limited to European people because they didn't make it that way. There is a thing called the empire and the empire made sure that our histories are intertwined and you can't really present a one-sided version of the European history when colonialism is a thing that happened. What are some examples of events or people that are not being taught or essentially written out of history? So looking back at, I guess, my own topic, something which I found really interesting, which I learned at a conference was, and I learned from reading a book looking at global mental health um, written by Suman Fernando, was that the first mental health hospitals, they weren't European, they were actually African. And the way that history presents Africa is that it is and was a savage place with no real sophistication and a lack of understanding of what it is to like exist in society and support each other in society and that we need to come over as the British Empire as colonial beings and support these people who don't know what they're doing and who haven't had that knowledge because they haven't had a chance to develop. Side note, why haven't they had a chance to develop? But there were these things called Maristans and they were the first mental health hospitals and they were in North Africa and they used the kind of therapy that we're aiming for now, a multi-dimensional therapy which looks at the family and looks at medicine and looks at things like water therapy and different aspects and these existed in the time that we were burning people for being witches in Britain. So you question who who were the savages at that point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, mic drop. <laughs> so you're studying black mental health now, is that right? You're doing a master's in it? I'm doing a master's in cultural and global perspectives on mental health. So that's part of it, a little bit. Oh. <laughs> you go. <laughs> so do you, do you feel personally disadvantaged in any way for not being taught or not being, being allowed to be taught about other cultures or maybe your heritage at all does it has it affected your identity or anything I think my identity goes further than what I'm taught at school and that there are so many influences on my identity I couldn't narrow it down just to that one factor a thing which I'm never really sure about is the attainment gap it's hard to pinpoint how that happens and what happens and how that affects us and if that affects us the fact that it's there is something which concerns me and I never know the extent to which that could influence me for example I did I did an exam which was speaking and I straightened my hair before it and if I have an interview I will straighten my hair before it because whether or not people want it to the more I can fit into Eurocentric ideals the better chance I have of being successful that's that's really interesting and I'm kind of hit a bit by my own privilege in that I've never had to think about my hairstyle before an academic oral exam do you think that there is like an air of almost superiority when it comes to lecturers for example so if students want to maybe challenge their lecturers when it comes to like white curricula but lecturers by nature have studied in their field for a very long time so maybe you don't necessarily want to be challenged do you think that then makes it difficult for people to speak up well because of our work on the white curriculum we had students come to us and talk to us about their experiences and that was an experience that was repeated by so many students in the workshops that I ran in just simple coffee hours or chats Uh, students would try and bring their own culture their own experiences into their academic work and they would be shut down they would have their marks lowered in fact actually recently this student she came to me for help and what had happened was 
she had written about the lack of ethnic minorities in children's literature and although she had been averaging a high 2-1 of first all year they said that she was trying to be inflammatory with her dissertation piece and they failed her so for challenging the white curriculum she was failed in her masters and she's currently challenging that obviously but when it comes to marking work there's the whole the academics will know best So whatever biases they have, they're allowed to have because it's justified by their knowledge that they have, which is a product of the white curriculum. So when people do challenge it, what can we do really? And they're part of an institution that tells them that their point of view is valued above others. Exactly. So why is my curriculum white? It's kind of not only about ethnicity and and culture. It's, It's about all kinds of intersectionality. Yeah, well, I guess... It's about considering intersectionality in the way in which it was coined. So when you consider what Kimberly Crenshaw, when she coined the term intersectionality and the basement theory, she talked about your proximity to privilege with regards to this and with regards to intersectionality in general. It's really important that you're not just considering lots of different people with just the one oppression, but actually it's about raising the voice of the person that is most oppressed and the people that are most oppressed. You're disabled black women who are LGBT, your asylum seekers, your people who are from working class backgrounds, people who have multiple oppressions. And it's about raising those voices, the voices which are very rarely heard in our curriculums and ensuring that their perspectives are part of it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. And that was Leah, who worked on the campaign at UCL. Uh, I thought it was really great how she enlightened us about the prevalence and glorifying of eugenic academics at universities today. I honestly had no idea about any of them. Sounds like a really bad song, Eugenic Academics. A really bad band. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) The eugenic academics. So that was episode six. Why is my curriculum white? Otherwise known as why is what I'm learning male, pale and stale? We hope you enjoyed it or at least learnt something new. Let us know what you thought. You can tweet us at Kick Kyriarchy. You can find us on our website www.kickingthekyriarchy.org or you can Facebook us at Kicking the Kyriarchy. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.